This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, where we help you learn to invest in 20 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend for you to hopefully make some returns. My name is Alec, and today I am not joined, at least for the introduction, by my equity mate Bryce, but he will be with us for the main episode. Rest assured, you are about to hear his voice. Today, we spoke to equity strategist at Bell Direct and notable Australian market watcher, Julia Lee. We talked to her about her investing journey and then get into discussing some individual sectors and individual companies in Australia that she's watching. Hope you enjoy this interview. Okay, Ren, so tonight we are joined by Julia Lee, who is an equity strategist at Bell Direct and also a notable Australian market watcher and commentator. We'll get into a bit of uh, some of her background shortly, but as we always do now, we'll kick off tonight's interview with a quick overrated, underrated game. So firstly, welcome to the show, Julia. Thanks for coming on. It's so lovely to be here. So we always start, as I said, with a bit of a game to get an idea of what investor you are, which way you lean when it comes to particular asset classes. So uh, Ren and I will give you a list of asset types um, or general themes in the market at the moment, and we'd like you to tell us if you think they are overrated or underrated from your point of view and maybe a, a bit of a reason as to why. So if you're ready, let's get stuck in. Love it. Let's go. So, Australian shares, overrated or underrated? I would have to say underrated. And that's because I think most things in life are cyclical. And you'd have to say that, you know, the Australian economy hasn't been performing so well. So, if you think about incremental news coming to the market, hopefully over the next 18 months, we'll see the bad news bottoming out and the good news kicking back in. So, I'd say underrated at the moment. So, Julia, we've got an election coming up this weekend. So, overrated or underrated Australian politicians? Underrated, because I don't know how much lower you could get. I think the only (laughs) way is up from here. Australian politics has been a bit of a basket case over the last five years, especially the number of uh, change in leadership battles that we've seen. So, hopefully we get a bit more stability and good news out of our political leaders over the next four years. 
Fingers crossed. So moving away from Australia then, overrated or underrated the US stock market? Overrated, obviously late cycle. So um, I guess the timeframes get a little bit shorter here if you're looking at the market and the risks start to increase as time wears on. So overrated or underrated index funds? Hmm. Underrated. I think there's a place for them in portfolios, especially as a low-cost option and diversification also being important. I think one of the keys to long-term investing success is risk management, and certainly diversification plays a big part of that. Mm. So then to the King Spruker of index funds, overrated or underrated, Warren Buffett? Overrated. I love Warren Buffett. I started (laughs) off as a value investor in the marketplace as well, but I do think there are other investors in the marketplace with better track records. And I'd have to say one of my favorite is Stanley Druckenmiller. So I love Warren Buffett, but I feel like, you know, he gets deals on a lot of his uh, share investments now. It's not like he's buying at market price. I feel like he gets an edge in the market because of his reputation. I feel like it's difficult for normal investors to replicate his uh, stock, stock success at the moment. So I think a lot of our listeners are madly Googling who Stanley Druckenmiller is at the moment, which is, which is great. Um, overrated or underrated, investing in emerging markets? Mm, underrated. I mean, if you've been following the Chinese stock market over the last five years, I think it's been one of the worst performing. And yet in 2019, it's been one of the best performing. So I feel like the cycle is slowly turning there, even though we'll probably see a bit more volatility with those US-China trade talks. Mm. So overrated, underrated, uh, franking credits. Underrated. I think franking credits, um, I guess they're a tax credit on tax that's already been paid on that profit by companies. And look, they do have a big impact in terms of overall return. Taxation always does. And I think a lot of people don't like to think about tax. For pensioners, I think in terms of the impact, yeah, it's been understated. But look, we've already seen our profit warnings coming out from company Apollo Travel, which looks at caravans. So, you know, the whole nomad traveller, retirees. I think discretionary spending has already been hit and will probably continue to be hit. The other one we've seen um, a profit warning from is Flight Centre, which, of course, is that old bricks and mortar model. And if you think about who buys their travel through stores, it, it is tends to be an older audience. So, look, I think franking credits are going to impact not only on spending, but probably on the economy as well. So, overrated or underrated, cash and term deposits? Mm, Overrated, especially when, you know, the interest rates are at 1.5% or the cash rate is at 1.5% here in Australia and likely to go lower over the next few years. Really a difficult way to get returns from an asset class. And finally, Julia, overrated or underrated Australian property? I'd still say overrated. Um, I guess if you look at historically um, and the debt that we have because of property at the moment, I'd still say property is probably overrated. So a good little insight there into some of, uh, I guess, the important things that you take into consideration with vesting. You mentioned risk management and putting index funds in there as a way to help build a portfolio. And from my point of view, it sounds like you're, you lean towards the, the value side of things. You mentioned that, that that's the way you started out investing. Is that the way that you continue to think about investing at the moment? Probably not. I definitely like bargains, but I'm more about making money. So 
In the last five years, that's been looking for growth, whether it's earnings growth, price growth, or user growth. So I'd probably be more growth focused at the moment, but I also tend to adjust my strategy depending on what's happening in the global economy. So you could say that, you know, I like to look at things that are improving from a stock point of view or a company point of view, but I also keep in mind what's happening globally to understand whether I should be more cautious or should be taking more risks. Okay, so before we get into a bit more of that in the, in detail, let's take it back to the beginning. As we said, you're an equity strategist at Bell Direct, which is an online broker in Australia, and you also are a commentator of markets. So how did you get into investing? What was your first investment? How did how did that process all happen? Uh, right. Well, during uni, um, I actually waitressed at an Italian restaurant. And a lot of you may know that I, I am of an Asian heritage. Um, so it's probably a little bit unusual to understand that probably the first thing I tried to do was open up an Italian restaurant. That was not successful. It never opened its doors. But somehow I remember going into the National Australia Bank for a business loan, getting into the only suit I had and taking my uni assignment in and the business to open this restaurant, which was what I based my uni assignment on. And I received a $40,000 loan. I obviously had to pay back that loan. So um, I went looking for a job and I saw an ad in the paper. It said, do you want to become a stockbroker? So I applied for the job and I guess the rest is history. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. For, For those that don't know the history, tell us your journey from starting out as a stockbroker to where you are now, working at Bell Direct, commentating on the market, on your money and a number of other sort of financial media channels. What was the journey like and what were some of the key lessons you learned along the way? Sure. Oh, that's, it's been a long journey. I guess, first of all, I, I, I came into the market when online investing was just beginning. So this was um, around 2000. I was very lucky. Um, I started off at Comsec in the old days and went into investor education. So I got not only to learn about things like fundamental analysis, technical analysis, tax-effective investing, options trading, but I got to travel all over Australia teaching people about investing because at, at that time, um, your normal person on the street wasn't investing in Australian shares. And then another company which was mainly involved over in the US, which involved a lot of traveling, and I didn't want to travel anymore. And I caught up with Arnie Salvager, who's the CEO here at Bell Direct, who I used to work with back in 2000. And he said, why don't you come over and uh, work with us? I've been at Bell Direct for a while now. My passion really is um, combining um, macro with fundamental as well as technical analysis. And I love learning about how to make money. My first investment in the market, I remember Somebody told me to go with the names that you know and trust. And being straight out of uni, I drank a lot of wine. (laughs) (laughs) There was a a wine company which was listed on the market called Southcorp. And the minimum investment to invest in shares, a minimum parcel is $500. So I put $500 in Southcorp. I thought, you know, I drink enough to help support the profit of this company. (laughs) And lo and behold, you know, in a month, I doubled my money. So that $500 became $1,000. And, you know, I thought this is easy. I'll give it another shot. You know, being a deep thinker, I thought, you know, actually, I don't want my shares to go south, like in the name of South Corp. I actually want them to go north. And at the time, there was a a company called North Limited. And I thought, 
That's perfect. So I put my $1,000 in North Limited and North Limited got taken over by another mining company and my $1,000 became $2,000. I thought, I can do this again. And lo and behold, I'm scanning through the list of companies on the market at the time and there was one called Julia Mines. Now, my name is Julia and I thought, this is a sign. So I put $2,000 in Julia Mines. It was during the tech boom and Julia Mines overnight became Julia Limited and my $2,000 became $4,000. I guess since then I've um, refined my investing strategy. But I guess what drives me is trying to find out why share prices change and why they move and trying to find those investments that are going to move. So, Julia, it sounds like you had probably the most ideal start to an investing career anyone could ever imagine. I know both of us had somewhat difficult starts. Uh, I know, for example, Ren, his very first investment was Slater and Gordon when it oh. was in the <laughs> That's <laughs> the reaction the, everyone gives me. <laughs> when it was in the sevens and luckily it wasn't his last investment. And I think for a beginner investor, losing money when you begin is probably a very important lesson. Was there a time where you of money and what was sort of the thing that you learned from that that you could sort of pass on to a beginner? Oh, yes, I t- you, you always remember your first big loss, I think. And for me, it was when I was 23. I have this thing where if I'm um, telling people about something or teaching people about something, I want to understand it and have traded or invested in it first. So at the time, I was supposed to be teaching people about options trading. Um, so I got very heavily into options trading. And I was doing a lot of naked put um, positions, which... To those of you who aren't familiar with options trading, it isn't anything um, mildly sexy, as a naked put suggests. It uh, it actually has unlimited risk potential. And on this particular day, I had two contracts. And the thing with options is when you're selling options, you receive money. So you, you don't actually fork out a lot of money. You only fork out money when the stock moves against your point of view. And in this case, I had two naked positions, one for Aristocrat Leisure and one for Southcorp. I was 23 years old, sitting at my 100 other people in the stock market, and I remember losing $15,000 on each contract. So I'd lost $30,000 in a day at the age of 23. And I sat there thinking, what am I going to do? Well, I thought I'm not going to do naked put positions anymore. And that's why risk management is a, a big part of my strategy and a big lesson I learned that day. But I continued to trade options. And by the end of in another uh, 18 months time, I bought my first property with the money I had made options trading. That was a difficult journey, but an important one, especially in terms of risk management and entering into positions where there's unlimited risk potential. Yeah, well, I think a lot of our listeners are now Googling options and thinking of it as a way to to get that first property. So I think we should just say, make sure you've done your homework, speak to a financial professional before you trade options, especially naked options where there, there is a lot of risk. And I think that's a really important point. When people get it, uh, started in trading or investing, often they get attracted to making as much money as they can. I took a different view um, in that most disciplines take a minimum of three years. If you were to study a degree or you, even if you wanted to become a doctor, that takes a lot more years. So I gave myself a minimum of three years to try and figure out how to make money. 
and I kept a notebook. And my thinking was that I could lose money in those three years. That was okay, as long as I had the lessons to keep with me for the rest of my life. So I do believe that when you start investing, you should start at the lower risk end of the spectrum without margining. And as you gain the confidence and skills, go higher up that risk curve. So my message there was not go into the riskiest (laughs) products that you can, but please try and start off on the the lower risk end because I I do believe that there are a lot of lessons that you need to learn before you become a successful investor or trader. So picking up on something you said there, you said you kept a notebook um, in the early days and to keep track of your trades. Is that something you still do and did you find it valuable? I found it extremely valuable. I don't do it these days because um, the way I invest and trade is a process that I have in place and rules that I tend to follow. So hopefully I keep to that strategy. So, you know, my notebook would be pretty boring um, if I was to keep that at the moment. But certainly it was a a journey of uh, discovery into my investing style and trading style and what worked with me because a lot of it is around about some of the skills that you may have just picked up along the way, either from your parents or just growing up and just trying to find what works for you because often what works for you might not work for another person. Yeah, I started, I have started over the sort of past 12 months trying to get a bit more of an understanding of the technical side of investing and using it as a way of timing my entry into stocks sometimes or getting stocks that, you know, a bit on a bit of a run or in, in a growth stage. And for that particular side of my investing, I've started to at least note a bit more about my trades. And I think, yeah, it's proving pretty invaluable because you forget sometimes, you know, why you did the trade or, you know, if you forget that you lost more money than you thought you did or whatever. And uh, referring back to them is, is uh, for me, I think, proving pretty important. Do you notate anything, Ren? Uh, I try to. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely valuable to look back on your thinking. And, you know, sometimes you ask, what the hell was I thinking at the time? But, you know, that that's where it's probably the most valuable. You don't probably get a lot of value from the ones where you make a lot of money. There's a bit of confirmation bias. But, yeah, I definitely think it's valuable and definitely something I try to do. Mm. So, Julia, let's move into a bit more about the markets and pick your brain a bit about, I guess, why stocks move in price. You mentioned there it's something that you've really tried to understand and it's what you're sort of passionate about. So, before we go into talking about individual stocks, can you maybe discuss a bit about the work that you've done in this space and what are some of the main things you've learned when it comes to factors that actually change share price? Well, obviously, I started off with a passion for fundamental analysis and the Warren Buffett way of thinking. Um, But what I found was that often when you're investing in quality companies, that sometimes the share price doesn't move for a long period of time, sometimes many years. And the first thing that I guess I learned is that sometimes it's the worst companies that have the best stock returns. And, you know, it confused me. I thought, how could it be that some of the most well-run companies, the best companies, the share price doesn't move for a long period of time, and some of the worst companies that were just about to go broke sometimes have the best performance. And I came to the realisation that what moves share prices is something changing. If If everything remained the same, then the value of a business shouldn't really move. Think about buying our local corner shop. The return on equity 
is 10% a year. There's no debt related to it. The company's just going to grow at 10% a year. The profit's growing at 10% a year. And look, nothing is going to change in that neighborhood. Let's say I bought it for a million dollars. Three months later, I decided that, you know, running a corner shop's not for me. Um, I want to sell it. Now, how much would I be able to sell that corner shop for? The answer is probably pretty close to a million dollars. Might be a nice corner shop, but the price really hasn't moved so much. But what if in that time they decided to build a high-rise building, um, let's say, with 500 new apartments right next to the corner store and it was going up and it would be completed in a year's time? Now, do you think that you'd be able to get more than a million dollars for that corner store? And the answer is probably yes, because the growth outlook for increasing profitability and getting more revenue through the door has improved. Um, So what changes values of companies is usually something changing. And in the case of the company that almost went broke, that was one of the best performers, and if you think on Blue Scope Steel, this is the company I'm thinking of, You know, when you get to rock bottom and you almost go go broke and going broke is pretty much priced into the share price, and then you incrementally get good news. If you start to get good news, for example, that they've secured funding, would that have a positive impact on the business value or negative? Well, that would have a positive impact, so the share price would move higher even though, you know, the underlying business is a bit of a basket case. So it says incremental changes and the impact they have on the business valuation that I think moves share prices. And that's sometimes why during reporting season, you'll co- you'll get a company that's come out with a record profit that's increased by 100% and you see the share price fall 10%. Why does that happen? Well, maybe the market was expecting to see 150% uh, return and only saw 100%. So if you're adjusting to that information, do you adjust the value of the business upwards or downwards? The answer would be downwards, so the share price falls. So I guess when I look at share prices, I really think of something having to change over time for the value of that business to change. Yeah, that was definitely a big learning for me in my early days, understanding the effect that expectations of the market and what what that can do to share prices. So if you if you look at the ASX today and what's changing in the Australian market, where, what do you say is the most interesting sectors in which you can apply these lessons that you've learned? It's more company specific. Generally, if you have a look at investing and look at uh, changes, usually inflection points or a change in the direction of a, a, a share price direction it comes from something new. So either a new CEO, a new strategy, a new product. So I look for things like that as a potential catalyst. Or if I'm looking at an individual company, I look for what the catalyst might be. I guess if I look at a particular sector, I'm looking for something that impacts the whole sector in a positive way. For example, Afterpay, um, stocks like Goodman Group have really benefited quite a lot from that move from bricks so bricks and mortar retailers, to clicks. And that structural trend has lifted the companies that are exposed to that particular trend and, of course, negatively impacted the companies that haven't been able to adapt to that trend. So I do like to look at cycles and trends, structural changes to try and work out which companies are positively or negatively impacted. Are there some sectors that you understand much more than others or that are maybe pet favourites that you like investing in more than some others? Oh, favourites. 
the last few years, yeah, the technology space. I do find the healthcare space also quite interesting, but mm. full of a few pitfalls. I find that some of the worst investments that I've made have been based because there's a really nice story behind something. And that's often the case in biotechnology, where often, you know, people are trying to help people with cancer or other life threatening illnesses. So um, for me, yeah, I guess those two would have to be my favourites. I find that the other sectors in the market tend to be dominated by more mature businesses, which is yeah. fine. I just think that the bigger the businesses are, the more difficult it is finding aggressive growth. So if you think about the big four banks or Telstra, I think when you're quite large, it's it's difficult to be innovative and find that growth. On the other hand, you have a company like CSL in the healthcare space, which is extremely big and yet hugely innovative and uh, keeps on reinvesting into its R&D program. And so it's got a whole pipeline of new product at any one given time. So just to follow on from that, do you invest directly in any other countries other than Australia? In direct shares, I invest only in the Australian market. I'm an Australian equity strategist, so I guess Australia is my passion. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and then <laughs> for diversification, I, I will either do it through exchange-traded funds or yep. through um, fund managers exposed to those areas or businesses exposed to those areas. So if we start talking about individual stocks, I think that's something that our listeners have been calling out for recently they're really interested in getting exposed to some companies that they may not they may not have heard of before and who better to speak to about australian equities and companies they haven't heard of before than you julia to start with are there any particular companies that are really interesting you at the moment uh, at the moment, I, I guess I'm becoming a little bit more cautious in terms of the, the market. So I'm probably a little bit more defensive than I usually am. Um, having said that, one stock that's caught my eye recently is Flexi Group. Now, Flexi Group was one of well, the first company in the buy now, pay later uh, space in Australia. And you know, when you go into Harvey Norman and you can pay through Flexi Group or through Dick Smith Electronics, it's been in that space for a long time. But then you've had these newer, I guess, um, more nimble players like Afterpay coming into the market and Zip Money. And Flexi Group share prices never really caught up. Well, they've launched a new strategy. They've signed up some big players like IKEA as well as Maya. And it looks like they've gotten some pretty easy runs on the board. So, Usually when I look for a change in the direction of the share price, is something new. And in this case, it's a new strategy and it's a new CEO. So recently, they've seen a bit of momentum in terms of their share price. They've had a little bit of good news. Just having a look at how the share price has performed, it's up 22% over the past month. And look, I think it can continue on as long as it keeps on uh, running in that right direction and keeping those good goals. Do you think it's also partly to do with the the heat that uh, the buy now, pay later sector itself is getting? I think if you look at most of the stocks in that space, they're all on a bit of a run at the moment. Yeah, and I feel like they've been on a run for a very long time, but Flexi Group has just missed out on that run. It just yeah, right. seemed to be ceding ground to those newer competitors out there in the marketplace. But I feel like Flexi Group has found its feet, and I guess if it continues to sign up retailers, that should trans 
translate into revenue. So you look for uh, catalysts to re-evaluate stocks. And I feel like Flexi Group certainly has a, a strong case for a re-evaluation. I'll just quickly follow on from that, Ren. Uh, one of the sectors that all of our listeners are asking about, not all of them, but a majority is obviously buy now, pay later. And we uh, set up a hypothetical portfolio back when we started the podcast and got a afterpay in there at $2.50. So it's made our hypothetical returns wow. look quite amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Only that was real money. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so it's obviously booming and uh, Zip's been on an absolute tear over the last sort of few months. I know that there's a IPO coming for, is it Sezzle or Sizzle or something, an American company in that in that space coming soon. What do you, Where do you see the sector from a, a macro point of view, I guess, and is it just all, I guess, heat at the moment? Where's the, where do you see it all playing out? I think this is such an interesting space. I mean, from a macro perspective, so having a look at the economic impacts, it appears that, you know, groups like this are sort of bringing forward purchases. And even though it's not counted as credit, people are pretty probably bringing forward the purchases they probably would have had the capacity to do in the future. And so that takes away from future spending. So after the initial impact of these companies offering, I guess, a different way of paying occurs, probably watching the UK market as well as the US market, if they've been as big as they have been in Australia, then I think after the initial effect of an uplift in consumer spending for these retailers, you start to maybe perhaps even get a bit of a lull because you've taken away from that future spending potential of of your shoppers. I guess in this space, Afterpay is the one that I've always backed, and that's because I do believe that you should go with there is a first mover advantage, but I also think that when looking at investing, often we get we get caught up in how much we're we're paying. So, for example, if we're comparing two different companies like REA Group and Domain, a number of times in the past, you've seen different analysts backing Domain on a valuation basis because real estate looks more expensive. And yet REA Group is 90% of real estate agents to use REA Group. And in terms of share price performance, it's also been superior as well. So I tend to go with the number one player, even though the number two or the number three or the number four player in that area or that field is usually cheaper. I do think that the number one player does have more options out there and tends to be able to grow more aggressively as well. So I would probably back Afterpay. Having said that, it is very much dependent on the US market. And I'm a bit of an online shopper, so I get uh, lots of marketing emails from lots of stores all around the globe. And some of those stores are US stores. And, you know, I'm used to seeing the Australian retailing emails with, you know, the Afterpay symbol and marketing Afterpay. But I had an email about um, buying um, buying skincare, and there was a symbol that I had never seen before and a brand I had never seen before. I thought, that's a little bit strange because I thought it was an Australian company sending it to me, but it actually turned out it was a U.S. company sending it to me. And in the U.S., it looks like the uh, buy now, pay later is taking off as well. So while Afterpay is making lots of runs on the board in terms of the US, if you have a look at some of the marketing that might be coming through from US-based companies, have a look to see um, whether they use Afterpay or whether they're going with someone else. So 
Oh, I'm I'm really happy that um, Afterpay is over in the US. I suspect that it's going to get a bit more competitive from here because it looks like some of the US companies have conned on to the fact of over here. If you are worried about Afterpay shares, I'd, I'd say don't stop investing in Afterpay because these things tend to go on a lot longer than people think. And usually the general rule of thumb is never sell something that's in an upgrade cycle that's continually growing. However, if you are nervous, you can put a trailing stop loss on. And a trailing stop loss is great because basically as the share price moves up, the the price you're protected at or the price that your um, sell order hits the market at also goes up together with the share price. So it's almost like your risk management strategy moves up with the share price. And then as the share price moves down dramatically and triggers your stop loss, the price of the stop loss doesn't go up anymore. And as it's triggered, your order hits the market. So it's a way of, I guess, monitoring your investments. If you start to get a little bit emotional and you feel like it's run too hard, you can always look at a trailing percentage stop loss where you set a percentage uh, below the share price. And as the share price rises, that stop loss also rises. But as the share price falls, um, if it falls dramatically, it'll be triggered. Wow. Very interesting stuff. I am still in afterpay, so I'm glad you said don't sell. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good. I, that's really interesting. <laughs> so, Julia, picking up on something you said there, you mentioned that uh, one of your common sense ways of checking Afterpay and how it's going in the US is looking at those marketing emails and seeing what their penetration is with US retailers. I noticed on your Twitter you had another common sense way of testing the market and seeing how different companies were competing against each other, and that was checking the shelves of Chemist Warehouse for infant formula sales. So can you just tell us a little bit about that and how you're seeing that infant formula sector go more generally? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sure. When I go to the shopping center or when I'm looking at a lot of uh, shopping brochures, there's a few things that I always check. One of them is instinctively the infant formula shelves just to see um, what might be popular. And sometimes, you know, I stick around for a while and see what people are picking up and what they're looking at. It's not a guaranteed method because obviously there's other factors that come into place. But the particular chemist warehouse that you were talking about was the one next to UTS University. And I suspect that, you know, there might be a few mothers in that area, but I'd imagine that a lot of the volume might be from uni students who are looking to make some income while they're, while they're studying. So 
I had a look there and just had a look at what was selling and what was not. The other thing I do is check the review websites that mothers tend to go for because it's all great and well to have an idea, for example, like Blackmores did to produce an infant formula together with Bega. Blackmores is well known for its vitamins. Obviously, you know, they'd have a superior product and it would just kill the market and they'd make lots of money. And yet that was not the case. Um, And I guess the thing with baby formula, if you've never had to use baby formula yourself, what you don't realize is that baby formula reacts in babies different ways. Some baby formulas cause the baby not to have a poo in three or four days. And for, you know, a a mother that's just had a baby, that's, that's really hard to watch your baby being in so much pain and screaming or the opposite, constant diarrhea. So it's not just about putting together a great idea, but it's also, I guess, on how consumers react to that idea. So I like to go to consumer websites, have a look at the review. I like to try and get a gauge of what trends are in the market. I like to, you know, ask as many people as I can if they're mothers, you know, what formula do they use? Why do they use that formula? Who put them onto it? And the the responses are, are quite interesting. Same way if I'm looking at catalogs and looking at vitamins, you know, is Swiss discounting its vitamins by 50%? How long has that discounting been going on for? Because ultimately, I know that there's an impact on Blackmores and in terms of margins and in terms of uh, the demand for Blackmores, who's a major competitor of Swiss in the marketplace. So all these little things, I like to try and, I guess, have a look at what's impacting on the underlying business. That was a really good insight, Julie. I think one of the key questions that we always get asked from our beginners is, you know, that, that sometimes they think that there's a, a single source of truth or one website that has all the information that you need to make a decision on a stock, which we all know is certainly not the case. But just given some really good examples as as to how you can find a whole bunch of information just by, I guess, taking a bit more of a a notice of what's going on around you in, in your own world. So, yeah, I, I hope uh, our listeners got something out of that because I think it's a really important lesson. You know, you don't have to worry about finding the fundamentals and all that sort of stuff when you, you've got so much stuff around you. But let's talk about some of the key metrics that you do look at when you start sort of screening stocks. And you mentioned you're looking at growth companies and a bit of a technical approach. So what are some key metrics that you that you look at to, I guess, start screening some stocks? Okay, so I look at it in three different layers. The top layer would be the macro global environment. The second layer would be uh, the fundamental picture or earnings growth. And the third would be technical analysis or looking at price action. So from a macro point of view, the reason why I guess I had such an easy time of it when I started off investing is that the macro environment was quite supportive of investing in shares. And generally, when you're seeing growth rising and inflation rising, this tends to be a bit of a golden era for shares. That's the time to be really concentrating on looking at growth, that is companies that are growing their earnings quite aggressively because people feel confident and they're likely to invest um, in growth rather than bunkering down in cash and more defensive type of investments. As you move on to the next part of the economic cycle, which is growth is still starting to moderate. So you're still seeing growth, but you're just not seeing that increase in growth and inflation still rising. This becomes a bit more of a difficult is to make share stock returns. 
And this is where I, I guess you start being a bit more cautious and a little bit more defensive in terms of the market. So I definitely look at that macro overlay to investing and it mostly influences the style of investing, whether I'm looking at a large portion of growth assets versus more defensive assets or whether I'm concentrating more on defensive assets versus growth assets. And then one of my passions is just reading different academic studies on what makes money. And I know that there's been a lot of studies that have been done on both price as well as earnings momentum. So, for example, a company that's increasing its earnings tends to outperform the rest of the market. So, as a group, that group of companies tends to outperform the rest of the market. Same with price, a company where we are seeing price momentum, so the price going up, well, the price usually continues to go up. But there's also been studies that combine the two. That, that is the earnings momentum together with the price momentum. And what these studies have found is that by combining both uh, fundamental and technical analysis and looking at momentum in the underlying company and earnings as well as in terms of the price, that you get a much stronger signal and a much stronger result. So rather than just using technical analysis or just using fundamental analysis, turns out that by combining the two, you get a much better result. So I like to combine the two. Fortunately, there's lots of different filters out there in the marketplace. When I started in the market, you actually had to pay for a lot of these software programs to filter the market because one of the problems is there's over 1,700 companies just on the Australian share market. How do you get them down to a much more manageable number? And I think the answer is filtering. So you can do that through Bell Direct for free where you can filter it down. And one of my favorite things to filter is for earnings momentum. So looking at the last period earnings to see whether that they, they grew faster than the period before. And I also tend to put in revenue as well as cash flow in there just to check it up because it's hard to lie about all three, whereas sometimes companies try to fudge one of those measures. And then also price momentum. So looking at bullish technical indicators and see seeing whether, whether there's positive price momentum there as well. And that's how I filter down my 1,700 companies on the Australian share market to a much more manageable number. I add a few more filters in depending on how I'm feeling, maybe dividend yield <laughs> or even market capitalization if I just want to uh, stick to the big end or the small end of the market. And I try and get that number down to about 20. So I go from about mm. 1,700 stocks down to around about 20 that might meet my criteria. And then I do more in-depth research on those 20 stocks. Yeah, wow. I think that's a really good tip around using stock filters because you're right, there's a lot of free ones out there and we'll include a link to the Bell Direct one in the show notes for this so you can see what Julia was talking about there. Not to sell Bell Direct, but the other thing is that if you're getting started with filtering, because I, I love filtering and I just do it in my spare time because I find it absolutely fascinating. But the great thing is that other people have saved filters. So if you're just starting out, you can have a look at other people's filters and also you can have a look at how that filter would have performed over the last 12 months, over the last two years, over the last three years, over the last five years and compare it to how it would have performed compared to a benchmark like the ASX 200 index or the All Ordinaries index. So you can back test those filters as well. So if we, I know you're an equity strategist, but uh, if we look beyond equities really quickly, are there any other asset classes that you're particularly interested in or are you purely equities at this stage? 
Uh, I definitely invest in other asset classes, but it mostly tends to be through things you can trade through the Australian stock market. For example, you know, if you're interested in property, you can basically get exposure to industrial, commercial, residential property through the Australian market. And through ETFs, you can get exposure to things like fixed interest as well. At the moment, I don't do any derivatives. I don't do any marginee. So I'm probably quite conservative at the moment, just Australian shares, global shares, getting interested in the Chinese market. And I have been since the start of the year and just trying to have a look at those different market cycles and where different assets are in that cycle. Yeah, I think there's so much opportunity in equities and um you know, then branching out into exchange-traded funds and stuff, there's more than enough to keep us occupied. So, Julia, one one thing that Bryce and I do every year is we do a stock of the year competition where we each pick a stock and we see how we go um, over the year. And last year, Bryce beat me comprehensively. <laughs> this year, we've each chosen a stock. And given that you're an Australian equities strategist thought we would ask you your thoughts on both of the companies you don't have to tell us who you think is going to win the competition but uh feel free to if you want to (laughs) so uh my company was costa group and bryce's company was baby bunting so if you have any thoughts on either of those stocks i know we're putting you on the spot here but uh would be interested to know what you think Look, I think both of those companies are good companies. Baby Bunting, because, you know, when all your major competitors go broke, you're in a pretty good situation. Well, actually, initially, you're not in a great situation because there's a huge amount of discounting that goes on because a company's gone under or your competitors has gone under. But once that discounting stops, you're basically the last shop standing, um, which has been the case with Baby Bunting. When I look at retail companies like Baby Bunting, the quickest way for the share price to improve is through the opening of new stores. So really with baby bunting, if you want to see the share price improve uh, dramatically over a short period of time, like over a period of a year, what you want to see is an upgrade to the number of stores that they're rolling out. So if you see that they're moving to become more aggressive in their store rollouts, that would put a big kicker under the share price. At the moment, they're probably in a pretty nice position. But once again, you know, just looking for that change, that's really going to put a rocket under those shares. And that would be the change for me that would would cause a rocket under baby bunting shares. Costa Group, on the other hand, I feel like it's a little bit different. I feel like the share price has been sold down quite heavily because of some problems that they've had in the past in terms of the berry market. They came out with a profit downgrade not too long ago, and the share price moved from, I think, around about $9 down to $4.50. So, in a period of... Just to clarify, we picked stock of the years after that. So, I haven't lost half my money already. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you probably picked it at a very good time. So, it was over from June last year to January this year. The share price went from $9 down to $4.50. The share price has since improved to $5. And some of the problems that they cited back in January was around the berry pricing. Now, I don't know if you remember back in January, but trying to buy blueberries or strawberries around January, 
It was so cheap. Blueberries, you could pick them up sometimes at $2, $2.50. But at the moment, if you go into the stores, has anyone tried to buy blueberries over the last few weeks? I went to yeah. David Jones, which I know is a bit premium. They were charging $8 a punnet. So I thought, okay, that's a bit rich, but it's David Jones. So I thought, you know, I'll go to my local Harris Farm. So I walked into Harris Farm. And it was worse. It was $12 a punnet. And my friend in the share market, he didn't believe me. And he said, look, I'll pick you up a packet of blueberries from Bullworths. So he said, I'm going to pick you up. And then I got a text message saying, Julia, you're right. They're $8 a punnet at Woolworths. So look, I feel like the berry thing was temporary. And I feel like Costa Group has great exposure. I think around about half of its growth is really going to come from international markets, in particular Morocco as well as China. And I think the growth prospects for Costa Group in China are quite strong. So I'd probably prefer Costa Group to Baby Bunting, but definitely both great picks. Nice. <laughs> Time will only tell. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's good, good insight. So, Julia, that brings us to our final three questions, unless there's anything else you would like to ask, Ren. No, I think um, let's, let's ask the final three. Okay, perfect. So we always ask these three questions to all of our guests on the show. And we'll start with the first one, which is, do you have any must-read books for investors? But I guess they can be investing or otherwise. I'm a bit of a bookaholic. And I have to say from an investing point of view, one of my favorite books is a book called Market Wizards. Um, to the first ones um, because there's been a whole series of them released over in the US, but I think it was Jack Schwarzegger, I think from memory was his name. Um, but you can Google Market Wizards. And it's just a series of interviews done with successful fund managers, traders. And when you're starting out, sometimes it can be hard to find out what makes a successful investor or trader. So reading those interviews taught me a lot. And I still go back to those books and I read those books. And it taught me a lot in terms of psychology, risk management, and also, you know, what my investing style might might be. Um, so I would definitely say Market Wizards. It's just interviews, interviews with successful traders. The other one that was a big lesson for me, I think it was called Turtle Traders. Now, this was a bit of an experiment between two commodities traders, and they had phenomenal return. I think they they turned a sum of money into something ridiculous. Anyway, they had this argument on whether um, traders were born or made. And one of them, um, Richard Dennis, argued that they could be made. And his other partner in crime, uh, William Eckhart, said they couldn't. So they decided to do this experiment to see uh, whether they could make a successful trader. And it turned out to be a success. And there's books about um, the experiment, and it was a trend-following system that they had and also with some risk management uh, thrown in. But it was an interesting book to read because, I mean, you see this in the markets all the time on whether some people are just naturally better at investing or um, trading. But in actual fact, I think this book really did show that, you know, you can be taught how to trade or invest successfully. Turtle traders. <laughs> Total. <laughs> and they're, I think they called it turtle traders because one of them was in Singapore at a turtle farm and they were wondering. <laughs> anyway, you read the book. <laughs> no, it sounds good. So we'll, we'll include both of those books in the show notes for anyone that's interested in uh, picking those up. Second question for you, Julia. What is your go-to source for investing information? 
I'd have to say directly the company. I the companies that I'm interested in, I read all the company releases, all the presentations, and then I try and match that information from sources that have nothing to do with the company to try and cross-check, I guess, what's going on in terms of the marketplace, but mainly the company, what the company releases, and then just trying to check that information, which is really important as well. And the final one, Julia, if you had to tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would that be? Take your makeup off every night. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, And we'll leave it there. (laughs) But I guess from an investing point of view, really the key to successful investing over a long period of time, I think the majority of it comes down to risk management. And it is much easier to lose capital than to make capital. Nice. I think um, risk management is probably something we didn't go into too much detail about there. And it's it's certainly something that a lot of professional investors and, and those in the industry talk about. So hopefully we could get you on at another point in time to probably delve into that a bit further because it is an incredibly important aspect of investing that uh, everyone should consider and everyone has a different approach. So, But yeah, we'll leave it there. I really appreciate you coming on the show. We learned a lot. I hope everyone else got something out of it. Really appreciate your time. And as I said, it, hopefully it's not the last time that we get you on because you know, talking stock specific is something that Ren and I don't have, uh, I guess, expertise in everything and getting you on to chat would be uh, really, really beneficial for our listeners. So uh, again, I appreciate your time. I've had so much fun. I'd love to be back and hopefully um, the listeners have uh, gained some information to help them out in their investing or trading futures. Nice. Thank you. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.